getting tired. Let's go home. Hello, and welcome to... Oh, shit, I forgot the name of my podcast. <laughs> Awooga! <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Gum Jabber... How many takes are we going to do on this? <laughs> Good to go. Hello, and welcome... <laughs> Now you're doing it on purpose. Welcome to Gum Jabber with the Moa Dweebs, a Dune podcast both thorough and flippant. My name is Alec the Baron Harkonnen Boyle, once again having some pretty campy scenery chewing this week, and I am joined by my two co-hosts, Lily Brislin and Josh Stevens. Lily Brislin, how you doing? How's your nerd, Alec? I don't know what that meant. I'm regretting my choice immediately. I might Are you okay, this. Lily? We'll see, yeah. No, I'm not. <laughs> Do you want to do that again? Lily, how's your how's your day? I no, I can't even talk, guys. Okay, just just let me just just say it's my name, and then I'll just pass by me. I'll I'll edit in a clip of me saying, unfortunately, Lily Brislin's comments during this time were inappropriate for publication. There you go. What up, nerds? <laughs> LP in the house, drinking wine and talking shit. That was perfect. There you go. And I'm Josh, Josh Stevens. Stevens, as Alec just said, Josh Stevens. right over me. Yeah. Josh Stevens. <laughs> I'm still Josh Stevens, um, and I am our Gurney Halleck. I, uh, I'm doing, I'm doing great. This is a, a beautiful day, and uh, I don't know. Lily's in rare form today, but actually, I'm not doing as great as I thought. I, I totally lied. In fact, we have a piece of business before we can start anything. Um, hold on, I have to. To pull up this official communique, this is a, a legal disaster. All right, so we have to disclose the nature of some recent events. Uh, we here at Gom Jabber find ourselves in the deep desert amidst a legal sandstorm that threatens our very existence. Apparently, Alec really screwed the pooch when he misspelled the name of the Benny Jesuit timepiece. Lily, what was that one called again? Melange. Yes. Um, you see, the good folks at Hellman's have already trademarked Melanginais for their geriatric spice-infused Dijon mayonnaise. Oh my god, yeah, I get that at Jimmy John's. Right. So now, because of our actions, we have Don't sparked... do you mean Leader John's? Yes, we have... We... We have sparked a totally unnecessary legal battle between these two amazing houses. I mean, sponsors. Um, <laughs> so we had to disclose and apologize. Alec, um, your written apology, please. Uh, it is with the deepest regret and self-reflection that I apologize for any emotional and or profitable harm I may have caused to the Hellman's Corporation in their efforts to extend the life of savory sandwich lovers throughout the known universe. Thank you. And what about our sponsor, uh, the good people at um, Space Clocks? 
and space bags uh, for misspelling the product that they paid us to advertise for them. Well, I have to say, I made it abundantly clear in um, episode two that I can't spell. So (laughs) that's on them for agreeing to sponsor us. They emailed you everything you needed. I I can't believe you won't take responsibility for your actions. Can't spell. Not my fault. It was the most sincerity and gravitas that I communicate to the good people of Space Clocks. You knew what it was. (laughs) Eat it, LB. (laughs) Thank you, Lily, for chiming in on this disastrous moment. (laughs) I'm not sure if we're going to make our way out of it, but I did my best this week to make sure that I handled the ad copy uh, as I usually do and to try to to right the ship from any legal um, reparations we might have to make. Um, I spoke with our our good friends, uh, the, the makers of Frem Kits, made by Frem Tech. All right, we forgot to mention their full name. Uh, and they wanted us to make sure that we communicated this properly. So Alex not allowed to touch this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so just going to set the scene that out here, some things are pretty much just like they are at home. Like still tents. They are glistening moisture barrier cabins with an ample sphincter for letting the whole family in and out. <laughs> <laughs> Two picture windows to let that comfortable breeze in, and the patented Fremtech screens to make sure that nothing else gets in. And like Fremtech sleeping bags, they're so soft and roomy, you'll forget you're roughing it. Fremtech, the greatest name in the great erg. Man. Really bringing home the bacon, Josh. We owe you <laughs> everything. Nothing's worse than when you're out there roughing it in the erg and your sphincter's loose. You know what I mean? That's why I always rely on Fremtech. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You need a tight sphincter for uh, that moisture uh, protection. Nothing more dangerous in the high desert than a leaky, moist sphincter. All right, guys. We don't need another disaster like last week. Can we just move on here? I delivered the the copy perfectly. We've already collected the money. Uh, I don't want them to take it back. Shutting up. Thank you. Shutting up. Chome script just doesn't spend like it used to, guys. So, we're going to do two chapters this week, because we just figured we'd been too close to actually doing three for too many episodes, so. Uh, and I fell asleep in the middle of the book. Well, to be fair, like I said in the preamble, you fell asleep at the perfect moment, right? Because you fell asleep right at the start of book two, Mwadi. You pulled a Royal Stevens, well done. Mwadi. <laughs> Uh, so we have two chapters. Um, I will read the first quote because, uh, Josh did a special rendition of the second one. (sighs) There is a legend that the instant the Duke Leto Atreides died, a meteor streaked across the skies of his ancestral palace on Caladan. From Introduction to a Child's History of Moadib by the Princess Arulan. Okay, okay, hold the fuck up. What we just fu- started. <laughs> what the fuck is Introduction to a Child's History of Moadib? Is that a different book from A Child's History of Moadib? Um, How else is she going to keep herself occupied in the closet of solitude, Alex? Yes, it's the pre- it's the pre- it's the well-known prequel. <laughs> <laughs> like that one to Lord of the Rings that no one ever reads. 
So, you know, brilliant. I've got a copy sitting on my shelf right here. You want me well, to don't you okay. Don't you hate when you write a comprehensive history of Maudib and then you realize you didn't go back far enough? Yeah. You really just have to rewind. Um, Maybe she only got fed based on the pages that she turned in. It was like a page quota. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like a... Um, uh, like a Poe situation. She got paid by... She got so many calories per word. Oh, God. That <laughs> seems sad, but possibly yeah. true in this universe. Intro quote to uh, to chapter 8 from A Child's History of Moadib. So they are, in fact, two distinct titles. I guess it's possible <laughs> that they're just referencing the introduction of that book. It didn't tell us that the first one was from chapter four of A Child's History of Moadib. I'm not going We're not going down this space hole. Okay. I think we all agree that she is abused, that yes. her brilliance is overlooked. And we're going to leave this um, buried in a space bag. Um, yeah. <laughs> so here's my other thing about that. I mean, uh, besides the fact that it's some obvious bullshit Atreides propaganda, um, just thinking about it on a reasonably, like, low light planet like one without a ton of light pollution it's actually pretty likely that at any given second a meteor streaks across the sky anyway so it's really not a very impressive miracle of the dukes i mean is this a world's collide well maybe save more (laughs) yeah tell us more what about that meteor in uh, game of thrones we love worlds colliding with game of thrones well, that's a comet that hangs out for like a year. Yeah, but it's like it's there until uh, something happens. I don't remember. Yeah, Dragons but I'm just born? saying this is one one falling star, which lasts about three seconds and happens like hundreds of times a night. You know what? That's actually a perfect metaphor for the Duke's death. Like just another <laughs> chump in a long string of overconfident um, <laughs> patriarchs. <laughs> I love it. Actually, the more we talk about this, the more I like it. <laughs> okay, good. Um, so I think what the 30-second the rundown of this chapter is uh, the Baron gloats, the Duke tries to kill the Baron, gets Piter and the Captain of the Guard, the Baron blames someone else for his incompetence, um, and then he has a little argument with a Sarder car? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah, and then he uh, expresses his wish to uh, rape a slave to the new captain of the guard. Oh, yeah. Not just any slave. A slave that looks like Paul. Oh, that's true. Right. <laughs> I mean, so I guess that is gross. one of the beats that rings truest in the like, chapter. Like, I didn't think rape could be any grosser than he's like, that one that looks like Paul. And I was like, I don't know why, but that somehow works. Doesn't he say something like, and I'm really tired, so I hope he doesn't fight too much. Yeah, that, he's oh, like, drug, drug him real good. Right? This is good. So this is the chapter where we're finally getting to spend some time with the Baron, and I am realizing how good a villain he is. And that they've spent, we said this last episode, but like... So much of the book up until I was like, those stupid Harkonnens, they're not smart. They're just, and, then, and then, like, they are way smarter than House Atreides. Way more schemy, layers on layers of plans that they're making. Um, and I start to kind of, like, have some respect for the Baron to be like, you know what? He's a bad dude, but he's a bad dude. Like, he knows what he's doing. And thankfully, they put in that little uh, 
profoundly disturbing rape tidbit at the end because I was like, no, he's gross. I'm not going to start to sympathize with him. I'm not sympathizing. Do you know what I mean? Like when you see a really good villain and you're like, okay, but you're good at what you do, right? Like you're good at it. And this scene was brought to you by Dunesta, the only, the only sedative the Baron will trust with his, uh, what what do you want to call this? Uh, I think you just cost (laughs) us a lot of money, Josh. (laughs) No, they told me they, they wanted, they wanted the product. The ADL is not with this. (laughs) No, the Baron, the Baron's, Baron is like their spokesperson, I think. (laughs) We are not accepting endorsements. (laughs) From roofing yeah, that's companies. A- <laughs> it's just Dunesta. Off license roofing. He used like use. he used like ten of them. He, by the way, the people at Dunesta want us to let you know they do not recommend the usage of more than two Dunesta at any given time. The Baron far exceeded that with his slave. Mm, boy. Uh, I love the detail, just in terms of like again, right? The Baron is a very vividly realized character maybe the most vividly realized in the whole mm-hmm. book I, think I love right. i love the detail about the fact that he's always like touching and fidgeting i also love that detail Alec. Mm-hmm. like what's he nervous about like he's yeah. got, he seems like such a cool cat he's got everything he's working all the angles all the time mm-hmm. and he's like that was an audio version of me Doing like baseball manager signs to my pitcher. For the love- Baron to his own jowls. <laughs> um, I do like seeing the, the the Baron sweating here in this uh, in this scene. He um, he even curses the Duke, saying, "Damn that slippery Duke." And I, I very much enjoyed that line. Um. Yeah, I think it's interesting how perfunctory the deaths of both Yui and Piter are. Like, they just slip the fuck off the page. Stabby stab, gas cloud, bye. I, I disagree yeah. about Piter here. Piter gets a whole a whole thing, and it's actually probably my favorite part of the chapter, because isn't this where the Duke talks about uh, who he needs to replace Piter with now? And why? The Baron? the Baron? Yeah. yeah. No, but I just mean, we get no sense of their reaction and actually we kind of don't for the duke either right we get no sense of their reactions to their demise right like yui louis yui yells at the baron real quick but then he's just gone right and piter you don't get any of his reaction you just hear the baron being like oh shit yes and then and i did the writing of that section does a really good job of capturing the chaos right because he never says the Baron slipped through the door, right? It's just all of a sudden the Baron is catching his oh, breath yeah. in another room. Wait, I've got a question. What makes you think that Yui's in this room? No, he's not in the room, but he was killed earlier in the chapter. Probably in the He is room. in the room. He's laying on the floor dead. Oh, right. You're right. He's killed before the Duke's even brought in. They bring him in. The Baron's like... Uh, That's right. He gets stabbed. Right, and then and then it's really interesting, cause, right? Because clearly the Baron gives Piter like the eyes that say "stab this fool," and then Piter stabs him, and then the Baron's like, "Why'd you stab him so early?" <laughs> I mean, that was exactly what happened. Uh, you you tell that the Baron was a little bit surprised by the swiftness, though, because he he even made note like, "Oh, that's how he does it." Okay, there's no hesitation. That's true, uh, but it, yeah. Yeah. I feel like also 
the the culmination of all of U.S. treachery is just to see, like he, how did he not know going into it? He did that Wanda well. He he knew, but so but he betrayed everything. He handed everything over to the Baron just to know for sure. Hmm. It's almost like if you look at his actions in context, they don't quite make sense. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's I almost that. like what doesn't make sense. Yui not realizing that not only was he, I mean, obviously going to die at the end of this, right? Which he knew, but that he wasn't really going to get anything, at, right? The, the amount that he traded right. for the knowledge of knowing that Wana is dead does not make prima facie sense. No, but like I said, it was, about, it was all about Alec closure. Boyle Esquire stepping into the episode, tell us more. <laughs> Just that it seems almost like maybe somebody set up some, uh, you know... Some, oh, uh, is this your effort to not say spoiler that I really appreciate? No, no, this oh. is my effort to talk about conspiracy. Con- I was going to say, he just doesn't want to say conspiracy again. Sub- subconscious oh. triggers in him, right? So that he would do all of this stuff, even though in the, like, in an actual evaluation of the trade made, it doesn't make any damn sense. I don't want us in a situation where any time that Frank Herbert's writing or plot development falls short, we're just like, oh, but it's part of an ultimate Benny Jennings conspiracy because we're just going to end up like QAnon, but it's going to be like Dunanon. <laughs> well, hold on a second. If, if the Harkonnens could brainwash Yui, break his supposed training, um, his conditioning, and convince him to break his allegiance, they probably also could have just gotten him to do whatever they wanted. So this all could have been... Sure, but it also might not have been the Harkonnens, right? It might have been the Bennies. Well, it might have been the Bennies on behalf of the Harkonnens, right? Sure, or on behalf of someone else, on behalf of See, the Bennies. See, this is or... QAnon stuff. No, 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 no. Do... Let's move hey, on. I'm ready to take the Dunanon Oath of Allegiance. <laughs> um, I also want to mention, they do specifically go into the Duke's thoughts, right, as he, as he, as he dies. Yes, but I think he does a pretty good job of dropping the curtain, right? Mm. Yes. I agree. Um. Hang on. Where, where, where exactly does it happen? Um, I'm terribly lost. Two twenty-seven is where you see all of his final thoughts as he as he goes to bite down on the pill. Right. And no, it's but it's actually not the pill. They even call it the pill of poison gas, shaped into a false tooth. Which, um, I was looking at the word pill as I said it. But he actually dies on 2.32, right? Takes a mm-hmm. long-ass time. He's confused. His, it's, it's... his yeah. final thought is, the day the flesh shapes and the flesh the day shapes. The thought struck him with a sense of fullness he knew he could never explain. Dead. Right. And then perspective shifts to the Baron. Mm-hmm. What kind of nonsense is that? Did y'all understand it? I was like, what? One what? thought remained to him. Leto saw it in... Saw it in formless light on rays of black. The day the flesh shapes, and the flesh the day shapes. I mean, it's it's kind of a truism, right? I think this may be one of those instances where Frank thinks he's writing loftier poetry than he... A like, lot of this chapter felt this way, like, ooh, it's going to be, like, psychedelic and going in and out, and it's just a little confusing and not fully realized. But I still like that he has one weird drug thought and then it's just kaput. That's that's Frank's love letter to the Duke right there. Okay, tell oh, okay. us more, lover okay. of the Duke's flesh. 
Cue this violence. No, I just think it's just like you said, you know, Frank's being, you know, cute and clever and uh, he puts it into Leto's final final thought. And it's just sort of this poetic man that he wants to portray in his final moment. Hmm. Oh, interesting. So you think that the Duke thought he was writing down some good some good lines there? Mm-hmm. He's <laughs> like, Sick, bars. I gotta put this in my journal. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Deep, fair. Deep stuff. Um, and then yeah, I like how he instantly makes Nifud the new captain of the guard. I like how he's like, well, shit. Now I have to let Arrakis kill um, Raban. Mm-hmm. Although I would, I would just want to backtrack half a second. This is much earlier in the chapter, but I really start to like the Baron, and maybe I'm going to be a villain villain fan from here up but come on the baron said we don't have much time and pain is quick (laughs) (laughs) so good i do think it's funny that they like they know the duke is super drugged and are constantly complaining about the fact that he's not coherently answering them (laughs) (laughs) where are they what's your plan the other cool part of it which we haven't touched on is that um very clearly other reasons that the Duke is maybe, or the Baron is maybe the most interesting, fully really realized character so far, is um, his reluctance to have a royal person subjected to pain. Like, he is very much aware mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the construction and the performance and the, and the performative maintenance of royalty, right? Like, it's not cool that Peter and Pyter... I'm so glad he's dead because I don't want to fucking say his name anymore because I can't Piter. say it anymore. Piter. Piter could see it. You know, he's like, oh, it's not cool that it's the Duke like anyone else. You remember that the uh, the Emperor had that same thought in the uh, in the. Quote. No, she doesn't because it's the quote for the third chapter. What? Are you serious? Well, there's, all, there's a Sardaukar who's there who's like, uh, the Emperor wants to make sure that the royalty died quick and painless. But then there's yep. a whole... The whole quote for the third chapter is basically uh, Arulin talking about We're not talking how, about this episode. Right. But it's... We'll, we'll talk about it later, but it's Arulin talking about how her dad was an abusive jerk uh, after he found out Leto had died because... Oh, yeah. You're, you're totally... You're totally after? right. So, that, so, so next episode, we'll, <laughs> well, we'll get to the point a, where the Emperor has the exact same thought. He went into what is known throughout the galaxy as a ducal mood. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they, 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 for short, they call it a dookie. Um, <laughs> um, also, you know, I had a really, really brilliant thought here, and I think I lost it. Uh, it was right in the middle of something you said just before, Lily. Man, what was it? The Baron. Maybe it was, it was just so my good. thought, and you wanted to repeat it. That uh, happens think, to me a lot. I think that's what it was. No, there was something, <laughs> though. All right, I'll, I'll have to keep thinking about it. Was it about the Baron keeping a shield on, but so low that you can't see it? Just as, like, I don't know, guard I, against bad breath? Oh, I just remember <laughs> what it was. Okay, so we're going to go back to some overarching things that happen in Frank's writing. And last time mm-hmm. I brought this up, it was about the things that are in italics. Right? Uh-huh. So uh-huh. we're going to talk about the assumptions that the Harkonnens make about the Atreides and the Atreides make about the Harkonnens. Okay. Ooh, I'm here for this. Okay. Yeah, I'm in. So... We've talked all along, laughing behind their backs about the Atreides and them not believing that the Harkonnens have any sort of creativity or wit or 
ability to plot or plan. Everything they do is heavy and ham-handed, right? So clearly that's not the case. But look at the moment here when the Baron is trying to get information out of the Duke about his plans, about what ha- where, where did you hide your daughter and your... And your concubine. You know, where's where's the Ducal Signet? We've killed him too soon. He had all these things that we could have extracted from him. He had these great plans. The Baron assumes that the Atreides are way craftier than they actually Oh, are. that's real funny, yeah. And the Atreides, who don't have an ounce of creativity, <laughs> think that the, that the Harkonnens couldn't possibly either. That's really funny. I often say, actually, that, that I have that. I have a really <laughs> hard time modeling information asymmetry. Hmm. Right. So I assume that everyone knows everything that I know mm-hmm. and that no one could possibly know more than I know. <laughs> right. Hmm. And so that's this what both house both houses just assume that the other house behaves the way they do. Mm-hmm. That's a really good uh, spot there. Thanks. That is super good. I am much more of a Harkonnen. I assume everyone else knows way more than I do. Um, or like, at, least, at least that you give them the credit that they had all these plans as well, and you're overthinking things. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Hmm. Yeah, but you're right. It's, it's really funny that the Atreides have no plan, which is what lets them escape, basically, right? They, much <laughs> like might be a quote from the David Lynch Dune movie, right? They bend like a reed in the wind, formless and planless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that enables them to escape the Harkonnen trap. Mm. I was just joking when I said I thought it was a brilliant comment, but it turned out to be pretty decent. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> that between that and your you're noticing the way that any question becomes a fact and any fact <laughs> becomes a question or a lie. Really this good. Total, yeah. It wasn't. <laughs> All right. Oh, wait, like which then I'm thinking break. like Sorry, go ahead, Lily. I was going to go get bourbon, but now I want to hear your thoughts. Oh, just like, like I'm staring down at this one page, right? And it's the Baron being like, rabbits, all of them. They were not. <laughs> they were not. <laughs> See? It's really fun just to kind of read the italic <laughs> shit in here. Uh, okay, go get more bourbon, Lily. <laughs> Ooh, the Duke. All right. Gown Jabber, part two, episode wait, whatever. Wait, we actually had a world to collide and we didn't even notice it. Okay. It was Robin Hood, Men in Tights. <laughs> All right, keep going. Keep going. And forever a ducal mood will be known as a dookie. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. It's interesting. We... I think that... Remember one time we watched Men in Tights with Amber, Josh, and I feel like she yeah, didn't love it. She did not. She I think it's because she's just slightly too young of a millennial. I think there's actually mm. a generation gap where people like up in our age bracket still love the sort of Mel Brooks mm-hmm. like punny word humor, right? And sure. I was thinking jokes. about that. We were watching some movies and, uh, you know, like all the things you watched in quarantine. And I was thinking like, man, oh, there's a remake of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels that's two women. Okay. So the original is Steve Martin and uh, Martin Fancy Sh- Guy. Short? No? No, 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 no. Fancy Guy. Um, 
and they're and the coast of France and uh, Steve Martin's the like hack of an American. This is not actually a thing about Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. The point is that they remade it, and it was the original is kind of a lovely farce, and the remake is like we can't actually think of how to make interesting movies that involve two women characters, so we just remake buddy comedies mm-hmm. and put two women in, and it doesn't quite work, and it's not actually the actress's fault. Uh, but mm. I was I was thinking exactly about this. Is like, man, there's a certain sort of um, melodrama in the most wonderful sense of theatrical history of like, like we know it's performance. Everyone's acknowledging that it's performance, and mm-hmm. it's a little. Sh- I love a little shtick, and like, R.I.P. shtick. There's and the yeah. shtick that happens anymore is not. Uh, it's different. Yeah, people don't people don't like it anymore, and well, because also. Yeah. Um, I've talked about it a few times on this, but there's a podcast called Newcomers where a couple of comedians I really like, Nicole Byer and Lauren Lafkus, uh, Lauren Lafkus, E-T-H-S, um, I don't know what that means. watch Star oh, Wars for the first time. Oh, is this a Chicago time. thing? It's an episode. This is, this is my high school. school. Um, she's like Dear a freshman America, when I was a I'm senior. I'm sorry for these boys from Evanston. <laughs> I'm not even <laughs> from Evanston. Yeah, he's not from Evanston. He just... We're Evanstonians are so obnoxious that he knows all about her Agreed. bullshit. <laughs> right, um, even anyway, I knew, like, this is some Evanston bullshit. They're watching okay. it for the first time, and the first one's, like, a lot of, like, I just think people under a certain age, right, people who are younger than 35-ish now, uh, expect a much higher degree of instant engagement and immersiveness in their entertainment. Right, they like you were just saying. They don't like that. Here I am. Here's the performance that I'm setting up. Right. Here's the performance. They just want, and then right. It's not right. This is. I'm not grumbling. I'm not being curmudgeonly about this. Right. It's just. It's a different taste setup, where yeah. we don't mind when Mel Brooks comes out and says, "Okay, here's a joke," and then tells us the joke. Right. Mm-hmm. Which I actually love. You're absolutely right. Although I, I think there's a couple different things you're talking about there. One is the like, I do notice that the newer Star Wars, by the way, the most recent Star Wars movie, I had to watch three different times to not fall asleep. <laughs> and by the third time, I was like, oh my God, why am I still watching this? It was just like, this wasn't worth three watchings of it. Yeah. Um, there's a difference between like, yeah, this sort of acknowledgement of like, Here's here's what I'm gonna here's what I'm gonna posit, and this isn't actually good for our podcast, but here we go. As the theater major, I think that there's if you've never been to a live performance, it is more difficult to appreciate the sort of uh, cinematic history that came out of much more contextualized in live performance culture and fourth wall and stickiness in comedy, which I love love shtick right well and, and i think that to a larger extent the, the live performances these people have been to have been uh short form improv right yeah. and so it really distorts and not distorts it just it changes your groundwork right yep and it's not even they haven't probably been their their context for live performance is like instagram live or you know like it's not actually the fourth wall isn't a thing that's funny to play with maybe there's mm-hmm. yeah it's just there, there's a there's a rejection of formalism i guess is the easiest mm. way to or the 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 broadest way you can define it but si- simultaneously like an adherence to it like they don't 
first the Mel Brooks farcicalness that's like very like wink and nod like I don't I wish I had another word besides shtick. But shtick is fine. Yeah. Self like self-acknowledging performative like we all know I'm doing a gag. Mm-hmm. As opposed to it's supposed to be this seamless Right, as opposed anyway, to a um this has nothing to do Judd with Apatow, right, where there's just that's sort of like right. performative verisimilitude. Nailed it. <laughs> Nailed it, Alec. That's what we're talking about. So anyway. when the first version of Dune comes out, and it's like <laughs> the Muppet farce, and it's sock puppets as the um, Shai Hulud, mm-hmm. oh, and all Dune. those things. You guys, can we do our own uh, broke-ass Muppet Dune? Oh, like as- can we do a Swede version of the Muppet Dune? <laughs> That's what this season culminates in. That's all okay. of this work. All so of these we take podcasts. our thirty second uh, rundowns of yes. each chapter, and that's just the audio for the, the whole audio thing. For the Muppet, the Muppet movie, right? And we make janky Muppets and then have them act it out. I am really, really, really this is a great this. project. I think that's what our, I think that's our Kickstarter, guys. All right, here we go. <laughs> Next right. installment in Muppet Dune. Oh, it's going to be the sad dirge. Okay, we don't have to read the quote. I can't even read it. So dark. Yeah, wait, dude. Yeah, we're done. We're done with the first chapter. Screw the first chapter. It's dead to me. I love it. Just like the Duke. That's why we took a break and I got bourbon. Yeah. Second chapter. Um, Do we want Josh? What? Since you're such a fucking bitch about this, uh, do you want (laughs) me to put the song at the beginning, at the end, or right here? Uh, Lily, what do you think? There's some new uh, DLC content. You can download it at will. Uh, for those of you who purchase Sneaker Snape Sniper, um, they are releasing their uh, their newest download content. It includes las guns and atomics. And uh, what was the one that they had going right at the beginning here? Explosive, Explosive artillery. artillery? Yeah. Yep. That's what I've been waiting for. I can't wait to get this DLC. There it is. So download Sneaker Snape Sniper and the newest downloadable content. Downloadable content? There's a whole world that I don't know about, y'all. Oh, seas of Caledon. Oh, people of Duclado. Citadel of Lado fallen, fallen forever. O seas of Caledon, O people of Duke Lado, Citadel of Lado fallen. Fall in forever. All right. So we come back. We've got our content. Yep. We sing the, the joyous song of Leto's death. <laughs> we all celebrate. So rude. I piss on his grave. Oh, seas of Calanero, people of Duke Leto. Citadel of Leto, fallen, fallen forever. Hey. He's 
Why did I even bother recording the song? Oh my goodness. Oh boy. Oh man, yeah, major key dirge for Leto is the shit. Wow, that was like parade for Ding Dong the Duke is Dead. That's the new um that's the new UK fight song. I mean, there was a whole cheerleading Wait, routine with that. Wait, that was incredible. Do you guys ever play Duke in basketball? Could you literally go play that at a game? Right now. Duke I don't falling. know college basketball. Falling. Dear Kentucky, I'm sorry for what you just heard. <laughs> the they only two college say. basketball teams that I know who play each other are UNC and Duke. And then I know... I know that UConn women are really good. That's the other thing I know about college basketball. Alex, just, I don't even know shit about basketball. And you are, you are, you are stomping on the graves of so many Kentucky grandmas right now. Well, their state has a shitty state song, so. (laughs) All right. The Duke is dead. Ding dong, the Duke is dead. Jessica and Paul are in their sphincter tent. Mm -hmm. Um, Sucking up moisture. Keeping it moist. And Paul, this is my, okay, here's my 30-second rundown. Jessica and Paul, tight inside their sphincter tent. Paul starts tripping balls. He thinks he's suddenly got ultimate knowledge about the past, present, and future. Uh, but he's probably just having a massive psychotic break. Mm-hmm. End of chapter. Oh, that's interesting. If there's like a, there's like a Buffy Asylum episode interpretation of Dune. Oh. That's where I kind of got in this chapter. I was like, okay. he is having a either like a schizophrenic break or a massive like manic episode. Where he's like, no, I see it all. I see it all, Ma. He's just, I mean, I do have to say there are some probably not unintentional parallels between Paul, who's just been hanging out in the desert inhaling spice for the last right day and somebody on a lot of cocaine. Right? Mm-hmm. No, no, it's beautiful. I've got it all. I got it. All the connections. I get it. All the all. <laughs> Mom, you're so slow. It's stupid. Well, <laughs> he he got that from her. That's all she talked about was how slow and stupid everybody was because they couldn't tell what each other was thinking. <laughs> I learned it from watching you, Mom. <laughs> I'm just like reading anyone the else? random things I underline. It's like, no, this dude is like lost his shit. Well, in the chat, when I said there's some ridiculousness in these chapters, what I really just meant was Paul's fucking inner monologue at Jessica for this whole chapter, right? Wait, is she I mean, not hearing this? Yeah, does she not get it? Does she not understand? They're fucking watching from space, man! I'm streets ahead, guys! <laughs> Besides that, did anyone else find themselves very creeped out by the description of what the inside of a still suit feels like. Oh, I Can you describe it to me, please? please they just are constantly talking about how, like, they moved and they, like, felt the slickness of the suit move along their skin, right? And you know the suits are, like, segmented into little water pouches, so it's just like, oh, you're just stuck in, like, a wet rubber bag for the rest of your life. Well, that's the that's the patented Fremtech technology. <laughs> Well, it sounds gross. <laughs> it's it's like glistening leather, oiled leather. No, rubber. It's, it's rubber. Latex. It's latex. definitely latex. Yeah. yeah the, glistening oiled latex. They did not, 
I guarantee, right? If you can feel the slickness, that they did not baby powder before they put these things on, and they're never getting them off. <laughs> they don't need to take them off. I guess not, right? That's the point of the whole the whole rant that Paul goes on, where he's like, "We can never fucking leave this planet now." You know that, right, we're, Mom? Predicted. Predicted. Mom. God damn it, Mom! We can't leave this desert. Um, <clears throat> geriatric is, mayonnaise. I think one of the main things that that stood out <laughs> the geriatric mayonnaise. Brought to you by Hellman's, our other sponsors this week. <laughs> Melagenaise. <laughs> the moist maker. Oh. <laughs> Do not want. That's what Ross on Friends uh, called his extra piece of bread that he put in the middle of his leftover turkey sandwich from Thanksgiving. That piece of bread was the moist maker. It's what made that, that sandwich so... Counterintuitive. Oh, Ooh, it's like covering soaks. condiments. Well, like the gravy from like in the mashed potatoes and like all the the juices. So it's really from the more of the moist. Anyway, I the moist don't like soaker. friends, but it's the moist makey, not the maker. You're right. You're absolutely right. I guess the point of that character was that he was an idiot, though. That's that's true. Um, so Paul starts tripping balls in the desert because he's stuck inside a sphincter with his mom, and he's like, "No, it's my mental abilities." But also, we're addicted to the spice forever. And honestly, after reading the whole thing, and this is the one that I fell asleep on because it was just like some crazy bullshit. Mm-hmm. What do we learn? Nothing except no kind we... of wild conspiracy theory. No, but I, he's and a, he's he like, he's a freak. He thinks he's a freak. He's beyond a mental. He's not even just a mental. He's he's like he's like mental. Mutant hybrid. He's just so right. She's far like, ahead "Oh, you're the, you're exactly." He's like, "No, I'm not just the princess satirite. I'm something else." I'm also part mentat. Like he has like the mentat and the Benny Gesserit in one. I, I was I'm mostly just relieved that his terrible purpose finally came back because it had been a couple chapters since we'd had to delve <laughs> Paul's terrible purpose. Isn't oh, the terrible Polly. purpose? Uh, it's a terrible Jessica, purpose. Do you feel bad for Jessica being stuck in a sphincter tent with Paul and his terrible purpose? Put it. Put the purpose away, Paul. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm right here, Paul. <laughs> Your mother. And I so like then, so that every time he thinks of the to... Reverend Mother, he thinks of her entire name in full. That you know that if I have any goal in my life, it's that when like the, the Paulies of my life think of me later, they're like. Oh, the Dr. Lily of Brislin. <laughs> no, but like middle name and any other yeah. title you could possibly yeah, what's, your, what's your middle name, afterwards. Lily? I'm not saying I'm a podcast. Y'all can get in my social security or something. That's for the polys to know <laughs> I and don't find think that's out. I how that works, but okay. <laughs> Just make one up. What's, yeah. your do- what's your Dune middle name? Oh. What's your BG name? Yeah, which which Arachian constellation are you named after? Oh my goodness, now I feel overwhelmed. This is why I can't be in role-playing games. I'm like, um, um, banana! <laughs> Reverend Mother, Lily Banana Brislin. <laughs> I guess Doctor it would have been Lillian. Reverend Mother. The Doctor, Doctor Reverend Mother, Reverend Mother Lillian, Lillian Banana, banana, banana Brislin. Lillian Banana Brislin, yes. <laughs> Things I don't want to miss out on this chapter to distract from how dorky I am. Um, they start talking on page 240 about the family atomics. Like, Jessica's like, oh, oh well, yeah. we've got to go find the family atomics. Like, what is my family doing wrong? I almost sent, a, like, a group message to all of the Brislins to be like, do y'all have family atomics and you're not telling me? Where are they? Um, my favorite you part of that whole thing was. Lately? There might be some right. uranium up there. It could be anything. 
50-year-old um, TNT that's going to blow up anytime you sneeze at it. My favorite this part is- was that um, Jessica has been around the Duke so long that she's like, oh, we hit those things so well. <laughs> that's exactly it. Every story that's you hear about so an old good. farm family is like, Meemaw's still alive, and she's like, ah, oh, your papa left that. It's a- I heard a legit story about a grandma that was sleeping in bed. Like, they're like, Grandma, we gotta clean the house, and she's like, "Well, better be careful." Oh, Pat oh, no, left the Lily. TNT. You can't hear me. I'm yeah, you have, good... you, we can hear you now. So start over. Tell us about your Grammy Mima. It's not my Mima, but you'll hear these stories oh, about Mima. old farm families. Ah, Mima. And this one is one I actually heard from someone. Well, you know, we went to clean out clean out the farm after Papa died. And Mima said, well, be careful up there in the bed, honey, because, you know, Papa stored the dynamite under the bed because <laughs> he didn't want the kids to get into it. He's like, Mima, how long has that been up there? Family oh. Atomics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you know how unstable old dynamite is? Mm-hmm. That's what I imagine. You know. The Atreides family atomics are like, like yes, oh, it's don't. just a box of atomic bombs under somebody's bed. And they're like, exactly. they'll never fucking find it. Oh, I thought they were <laughs> talking about the 20... Conids. Why would they even look under here? I thought they were talking about the 23andMe test kits. I thought those were the family atomics. <laughs> Did you Everyone's going to find out who Jessica's related to. <laughs> Everyone's going to find out... <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's a whole part of this chapter, too, right? right. Paul's like, I hate you, Mom. You're a Harkonnen. Why'd you do this to me? I never wanted to be born a Harkonnen, Mom. I mean, this is a whole nature versus nurture thing. If she, uh, if, if, if nature was a thing, she'd be way better at this whole game. That's true. <laughs> to be fair, she is the best Atreides at this game. Hmm. Right, even better than their Mentat, whose whole job is this fucking game. <laughs> she might be the worst Harkonnen at this game. She's definitely the worst Harkonnen, but she's the best Atreides at it. She's not even an Atreides. Well. Not by blood and not by marriage. Fair. Oh, snap. Yeah. And you know the Baron, not the Baron, yeah, the Baron pulled that in full head. He's like, you're concubine. And like, he was like, I'm going to call it by its name, Dookie. Like, if you didn't marry her, he's not, you know, if you want to play these bloodline things, you want to play it all formal. Like, he understands this again, not to come back to chapter one and not to come back to the Baron, but he is the only person to fully respect Jessica and be like, call it by its name, do do what it is. If you actually want, you know. Because even the worst Tarkonian is better than the best. I'm not going to beat that dead Duke anymore. No, and actually, it's a good dig at the Duke, right? He's like, hey, you're in my office. You're about to die. Uh, Remember how you never married her? Right. Oh, I would have married her. Horseshit. Uh, So then there was the whole scene uh, in the sphincter tent where Paul gets to tell his (laughs) mom that the Duke never doubted her. And wish he'd married her. And I know you're. Right. Pre- and I know you're pregnant with my little sister, mom. You <laughs> <laughs> even still love me, <laughs> right? But I mean, it is the first time we get boy. to hear the words "Saint Ali of the Night," which we are some of do. the best words in all of fiction. They are. In fact, speaking of best words in all of fiction, um, I was on one of the Dune forums this week, and everyone Uh-oh. was posting their favorite. Dune quotes. 
Okay. I wish you would just run our Dune for him, Josh. BT Dubs. Let's hear the good Dune quotes, though. Um, anyone have a favorite they want to they want to bring up, or should I just read a couple of random ones here and see what you think? Read some, and I'll try to flip back. So the the gentleman that posted this uh, said that his was desperate people come to Dune. Only the strong survive, and only the strongest remain. Oh God, I hate this guy. Yeah, I hate me. that guy and that quote. <laughs> um, I, lots of people use the "I must not fear." Fear is the mind killer. Uh, Which is actually, I will say, is a good quote that is overused, right? Yeah, like, and someone said, cheesy, but one of my favorites as well. I was like, okay. It's a useful bit of, like, mindfulness reflection, too. Like, I think it's sure. interesting that he was talking about that in the 70s, but it's also, like, not I a think, thing I would ever pin as my favorite quote. Uh, I like this exactly. one. Exactly, and I think even in this chapter, there's two better quotes, and I'm reading them quickly before Josh gets back to his. I'm going to come back to we don't have much time and pain is quick, which I think is actually a much better maxim for life. We, we don't, don't have much what? time, pain is quick. We don't have much uh, time and pain is quick. Yep. Yeah. Thanks to the Baron, right? Like, oh, I'm mm-hmm, sorry this mm-hmm. hurts. Move the fuck on. I, not to give you a glimpse into my upbringing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we never touched on this, but we do not deal in possibilities, Peter. Right? Like... He's like, oh, it's possibly this is possible. We don't deal in possibilities. Give me facts. Facts. Just the facts, ma'am. You know, yeah, you know it or you don't. Already two better quotes. Okay. What well, else? Well, right. What, actually, hang on. This takes us back into chapter one. But I love that because there's also that whole exchange with the Sardaukar where the Baron is basically talking about how he's trying to hide shit from the Emperor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when Piter tries to hide shit from him, he's like, I see right the fuck through you, Piter. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I feel like if um, if Josh was the Duke apologist, then I'm going to end up being the Baron apologist. Be like, yeah, but he's such a good villain. You know? Like, he's no, just and really good at it. Yeah. I actually, I think it's worth appreciating in the modern age where it's such a thing to make gray villains, that the mm. Baron is not a gray villain, right? He is a full-on villain, but he's also the smartest and maybe most interesting character in the book. Right. right? Like he, Josh said this off, like when we were talking uh, sometime last week, he was like, the Baron's a bad guy, (laughs) right? Like when you get into these chapters, the Baron's a fucking bad guy. And that's great because he's also the smartest and most interesting person, at least in the Mm -hmm. first half of the book. So I, here's a thing that this is getting back to me for. Do you think, that Herbert is, the, and this this goes back to like literary interpretation theories, right? Do you think that Herbert is this good of an author, this like deft of an author, or do you think that he is just psychologically projecting to such an extent that these characters come out this real? Mm. Wow! Right, like when I read a Martin chapter, like a, a George R. R. Martin chapter, right? Mm-hmm. Like like the 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 chapters where. It's revealed that, like, Euron abused his siblings. Mm-hmm. It's very clear that it is both an excellent psychological depiction of that behavior and utterly intentional. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. This, on the other hand, I'm like, he's got a lot of real people going on on this page, and I don't know if he meant to or not. I am it's definitely true. in that camp, Alec. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't know Frank well enough yet. Yeah, well, and right, this is essentially his first novel. I think he had written some fiction before this, but it was sort of like really? trainer fiction. Yeah, hmm. 
I love you as our like dude archivist, like our Frank <laughs> Herbert. You're the only one that's read or even remembers this book, let alone the other ones. I mean, what a fucking book to write kind of like first big go out the gate. A line from the God Emperor, the same guy that gave you the quote that you said that you hated, uh-huh. um, said, how could those who police others not be corrupt? They see every day the prosperity of crime. Oh, that's funny. That's my There's a really good Patrick O'Brien quote about how all judges are assholes because, like, just sitting in a position to pass judgment constantly. I am the decider. It inevitably <laughs> makes you both very judgmental and very corrupt. Mm. Although that's under an English system of law where I think judges have a little more power than in ours. But. Yeah. Yeah, they decide cases, right? Whereas our, I mean, ours are still too powerful, but ours are more um, bureaucrats or rules lawyers, right? They adjudicate rules, whereas in British law, they adjudicate, like, outcomes. I'm going to close this section. This seems pertinent. Are you, are you, cl- are you closing this already? No, no I'm, I'm closing th- I'm closing the quote section. I don't know there's a lot that happens other than Paul trips balls. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we're if we're still talking favorite quotes from Dune and ones that we should still sit with, there is no escape. We pay for the violence of our ancestors. Love it. I also love they tried and failed. <laughs> they tried and died. <laughs> I wish that quote applied to more people in the current world. Uh, well, I'm a big fan of Way of the Knife. Right? This thing is done here because it ended here. Love it. Love it. Um, also... Anytime someone mentions the OC Bible, um, do you think of a Californian Bible or an OG Bible? Or do you know what they're talking about? Is this the I, I know what they're but talking I also, My family that was just visiting, uh, despite COVID precautions, is from the OC. And it mm-hmm. is a real place, you all. And it is super weird. I've been. I've been. So maybe love- that's what happens when Orange County culture transcends us all. And subsumes us in the OC Bible. The OC is definitely weird. But I actually have to say, I like it a lot more than Los Angeles. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I would, except the one time I was in LA, I had pizza. And the pizza consisted of pizza with macaroni and cheese on top. And I've never, I'm never going to top that. That was the best experience of my life. You can get that in Des Moines, Iowa. I don't know what you're talking about. I've never seen it before. And it was special. Oh. Wow. Yeah, no, I like, um, like, Santa Ana is probably my favorite city in the greater Southland area. What about the Great Erg? Where's that? Palm Springs. Mm. Which is fine, but honestly kind of touristy. Um, I'm already bored with this. California's the worst. Sorry, Alec. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah. It really is. <laughs> Let's go back to that Kentucky bourbon. All right, so let's uh, let's conclude what we did here. Okay. It's a quick episode because there's only two chapters, but really, yeah, there's not really much to say about like Paul just self-aggrandizes for the rest of the yeah, chapter. He's I, like, I, I get so get much. Wait, 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 hold on. Uh, before before we end this, I need to I need to bring up something here. Okay, um, I, I like your bring-ups. They're often uh, me. No, I think me need... and Lily respond too directly to the text. No, this is direct. This is this is direct. It was the most confusing moment in this entire book so far. Um, I birthed you. They're they're they're, run, they're <laughs> you running. What? Jessica and Paula are running on the sand, 
They hear mm-hmm. a thopter. They look mm-hmm. back. Jessica expects to see a Harkonnen with a las gun, and Paul's like, "Ah, it's just Duncan, right?" And so he knows he because of the, it, the minutia, like he could hear <laughs> the wing flaps of the thopter and knew that that's that's a Duncan wing flap. Um, mm-hmm. And he and he yells out the window, "Hurry! There's Wormsign south of you." Um, I'm not exactly sure what he's telling them to do, other than okay. hurry. So get the hell in the hot yeah, let me give you my interpretation, and then Please. you guys can cut me down to size. Mm-hmm. My interpretation is, their first thopter uh, landed right when they killed the old dudes with their sex magic and nut nut kicking. <laughs> yes, that's then what they saw. If you'll remember, at the end of that chapter, they saw a second a, a second thopter, a second thopter approaching. That's true, and they mm-hmm. started running. Yes. Moments later, Paul's psychic abilities kicked in, and he's like, oh no, that thopter's got Duncan Idaho aboard. Duncan Idaho skids to a very uh, Josh-appreciated sick landing on a dune. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, it was. So hot, it generates the smell of sulfur as the rubber uh, yes. liquefies. Yeah. yeah, no, it's beautiful. Duncan says, hey fools, get in my thopter. Right? He says, yeah. get in, loser, we're going shopping. Okay. <laughs> They get in his thopter. He hides them in a cave. Uh-huh. He then has to go do some shit, right? They don't tell us what yet, but I believe it's connected to Kynes based on context clues from the previous chapter. Sure, I'm less concerned about where he where he goes and what he's going to do with the hard cut from, guys, there's Wormstein, go faster, and then... No, he means get in. Not go, get in. Okay, get in. That's fine. So even if they get in, then the next paragraph starts across the still tent from Paul, Jessica Sturden. You're like, how the fuck did they end up in a still tent? Where did Duncan go? He stuffed that. So I have to say, as a reader, (laughs) I love hard cuts. Hmm. Really? Yeah. Have you ever read any Patrick O'Brien, like Master and Commander? I don't read shit books, no. Okay. And that's fine. He... He is the master because he's also and like commander super, of hard cuts. I know <laughs> he's super heavily Jane Austen. So, have you read any Jane Austen? Yes, and I tried and died. I can't with the romantic okay. era so things. They both love hard cuts, right? Where you show a scene and then you show the aftermath, and you leave it up to the reader to figure out what the fuck happened in between. Why does Frank wait 238 pages to try this literary device for the first he time? He does not. I there are definitely hard cuts earlier in the book that I will show you. Huh. They're, they're the most chapter. recent I can think of was the reversing order thing which happened between two chapters where no, he No, no, no. No, there's stuff early on where people are like, oh, and, you know, we had a pleasant conversation with Gaius Mohayamanan. And then the next thing they're doing... The Reverend like, Mother, yeah, Gaius I, Helen Mohayam. Yeah, the Reverend Mother, Lillian Banana Brislin. <laughs> Dr. Reverend Mother, Lillian Banana Brislin. No, but they'll be like, oh, yeah, we had this conversation. And then, like, a couple pages later, they're like, and for some reason, I just couldn't tell them about this thing. There, there, there are other examples of fill in the blanks. I will. Co- there's plenty I, of there's plenty of fill in the blank, but this is like the first time, like f- in the middle of a page, in the middle of a chapter, they literally cut and change scene, and you know what? It's it's I'm weird. On this one. It's weird and confusing. 
Um, I didn't appreciate. I didn't find it as weird and confusing. I was sort of like, uh, I actually wasn't that interested in the softer ride. Here's what's happening, Alex. Yeah, Josh just Josh has softer blue balls. Right? No, I just couldn't tell. Did they get in the softer? No, did they get in the thopter? Did he just point like go over there? Did he? Did they like? Where did he go? Like, no, why isn't he I in the still tent with him? How much I weight was added to the thopter? Did he have to adjust the propeller speed? Were there other? <laughs> they didn't even talk about the takeoff. <laughs> they didn't talk about the worm sign. Like they, they didn't talk about any of it afterwards. Where's yeah. my worm? I think it is established by their wondering where Duncan is that he brought them there. Well, that's the first time you realize, wait, wait, wasn't he all, wait, what do you mean where is Duncan? Like, I thought Duncan would be back by now. Wait, yeah, wait, wasn't he yeah, that's here? The que- no, Josh, just stop. That's the question you're supposed to ask yourself. Uh, I didn't like it. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> Amber will like, tell you, I hate, I hate Wait, that is shit. Wait, is Yue the one that sent Duncan? And why didn't Duncan question yeah. this and want to fuck with stuff early and be like, wait, why is Yue sending me stuff? Apparently I we're going to find out. Yeah, I think that there is a whole Duncan chapter soon. All right. Where we find out about some, if not all of that. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. All I know None is they were in the desert. Bullshit. There's a thopter. Then they're still in the desert. Then they're buried in sand in the desert. Then they're walking in the desert. Then they're like, wait, oh, no, so before they're walking in the desert, they're like, oh, I thought that he would be back by now. Like, back? Oh, no, no. Why isn't he here in the first place? He was just here. <laughs> that No, the whole point of that is that, like, he went to do something. They don't tell us what. But if he's not back yet. It is implied that he has been captured by the Harkonnens. I know. I know what it's implying. I just didn't <laughs> okay, like the so order shit. Okay, you're just salty. <laughs> I, didn't like, I didn't like the order okay. shit. I hate when they That's mix fine. shit up and That's it's fine. not as clear as it was with those two chapters. This is a larger... Or this is... It's interesting. Right? This is also a similar sort of technique to N.K. Jemisin in Fifth Season... And that's pissing like me off for a book and a half. <laughs> right, but I feel like because it's less prevalent here, because you notice the one crop up a little, or the, yes. you notice yeah. the crop ups more aggressively. Yeah, because it hasn't happened for 200 something pages, but yeah. Mm-hmm. It has, but I'll, I'll talk about it. Mm, next I don't know. My brain, filled in those bl- my brain filled in those blanks a lot better than this one. I'll bring examples. We can talk about it. Cool. It's all riding on you. I just love that y'all read N.K. Jemisin, but not Ursula K. Le Guin. I love N.K. Jemisin, and I love that fifth season is what got people into her. You know that I've been loving her for years. I've mm-hmm. read everything she's written, except uh, what month is Black Future Month, because it's just, I need to get in my Kindle. Anyway. I don't know. I didn't like so the first curious. like 80% of that first book. But I, yeah, also, think, I also think it's because he listened to it. I also listened to those books. Oh, interesting. I feel like, for me at least imagining listening to it, I feel like it would have been much harder to keep track of. Actually, you're right. Maybe I list, I read the first one. Would have been I feel like later. reading the first one made it much easier to remember what questions I had. Mm. But that may just be how I... Re- like. I think Josh is probably a better listener than I am. I don't know. No one's ever accused me of that. <laughs> I'm listening to her newest book, and it's not good for listening, and I think I just have to get the actual book book. The City We Became? Yeah. Okay. I, I need to pick that up, but I just picked up um, S.A. Chakaborty. Is that her name? The The Kingdom of Gold. I don't know. They're not. They're not lofty, but they're really good. Like, 
Uh, Do you know what my 2020... Oh, like Genies? Like yeah. the City of oh, Brass Oh, the ones. series is so... Because here's the thing about... Wait, is uh, this the her. second City of Brass trilogy The third. Book? It's the third. Oh, I'm still in the second one. Okay, the second one, I have to say... I Spoiler alert. The climax Yay. of the second one is unfucking believable It It's the most tense climax to a book I've ever read. Damn, like it's like a basically book too. the last but the last 200 pages of that book I read in one sitting cuz I could not afford to put it down. It's <laughs> I so could not, fucking I couldn't intense. afford the emotional I know I was like cost. sleep sleep is bullshit. I'm finishing this book tonight. I don't care. <laughs> I cannot put this down. For I you know what I read earlier this year we haven't come to a clear conclusion here but the Binti have you all read the Binti books? I don't think so. I can't say her name. Uh, anyway, it's it's uh, next episode. I will remember the name of the author of this <laughs> Binti trilogy, and they're multiple short, like really cute. In the in the spirit of um, the Spaceborn few, Rebecca, what's your Facebooks? Space, they're space operas. They're like space cozy space opera sort of. The last what? space opera I read was Ancillary Justice. So. Oh my god. Okay. Join us next week on Gom Jabber and the Mua Dweebs when these dweebs actually read some shit. I read so much shit this weekend. Stop. You, you both read a lot of sh- a lot of shit. I just listen to some Doctor, stuff. Maybe one day Reverend maybe I'll Mother get a Lillian Banana Brislin, you are mean. I failed yes, your yes, Why why are you so mean? Why are you gonna be so mean? I don't mean? know, guys. <sighs> Paul's, I don't know. Paul put me off on this one. I was just like, am I have to deal with a lot of poly, poly nonsense? You're gonna have to deal with a lot of poly nonsense for the next two hundred pages. And I'm just but there's like, no more ducal. Just... There's no more dookies. But so no. But hang on. I have to say, it will become increasingly clear over the next two hundred pages that Paul is not the good guy of this story. And so yeah. that I think will be uh, some relief, right? Like, you know, every time the boy I get who must sad, be treated just... as a man. <laughs> That's Treat him like a man or else. I just think of that moment in the David Lynch movie when St. Ollie is like, wait for my brother, my brother Baron. How the much best of moment his... in the whole movie. It's a great movie. It's a great moment. Um, I almost brought that up when we were talking about the quotes. Um, Lily, but you look so noir thought. in that lighting. You really do. Thank you. It's wild. I'm waiting for a, a man with a hat to walk in the door. Mm-hmm. There's a smoked. Yeah. Yeah. Always waiting for a man to validate my presence, Josh. <laughs> well, you were going to give him what for? <laughs> um, how much of this um, this mood and this insanity and this um, like catharsis that Paul's having in this chapter you think comes from his inability to mourn his father until the last line? One hundred percent. Oh, I suddenly went into super analytical mode and I pushed all these things and subsumed them, but it's because I'm just hyper real and I'm just really able to process facts. And uh, my dad said, that's fine. It was, now, a parade, it was a parade of daddies in his it was head. A parade and of two of them died. I have to say, though, oh, in, wow. in, a, in, a, in a Dr. Dr. Reverend Mother Lillian Banana Brislin <laughs> manner. <laughs> I do think it is important from an anti-imperialist perspective that this is the moment when Paul finally is like, oh, the Fremen are just paying cash to stop the guild from photographing them. Turns oh, you're right. Out, we haven't talked about that. Turns out these fucking people understand money. 
<laughs> and how to use it. And by money, you mean spice. they have spice. weapons of the week, and like they actually are really astute at these yeah, systems turns and how turns to undermine out they're them. They're fully capable participants in the economic system we have established. And by money, you mean heroin. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. Like they yeah. will directly. It seems like cocaine is more accurate, actually. It seems you think much so? more like a stimulant. Yeah, I oh, think. Yeah. I think that Colombia is a better analogy than Afghanistan in terms Word. of this particular product okay right because right i think it's 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 oversimplifying and dumb but i think cocaine is a better analogy for spice than heroin okay Uh, i see everything i can see the universe i've never done actually i have no idea what i'm talking about right in that in um like he loves afghanistan obviously right like so many of his words are just directly Mm -hmm. stolen from there true but the way that like Oh shit! I, what are the anti-fart Colombians called? Do they have a group name, or are they just called, you know, honest, hardworking Americans? <laughs> anyway, the way that they defeated surveillance for so much of the late twentieth century is, I think, a much better metaphor than the way that the Taliban and Fayadine defeated surveillance so they could sell opium. Like nobody. Right, for most of the 80s and 90s, nobody cared that they were growing poppies in Afghanistan. That's why it took yeah. off so much. Whereas the cultivation of coca has always been far more politicized. To this my knowledge. Great. It's so good, Alec. And maybe this brings us somewhere to a close of like how gross Paul is and like my discomfort <laughs> with Frank Herbert as an author. But we get to the end of this chapter, he's like, um, I don't understand you, Paul, Jessica says. He remained silent, thinking like the seed he was, thinking with the race consciousness. And I've also been, I, I hope many of us have been doing anti-racist work, and I've actually been working through the how to be an anti-racist text, and like how, just really thinking through how race is such a social construct, but it's really used in Herbert's writings as like, oh, these are distinct people. He, no, they're all diaspora humans. They're just diaspora humans that have been planted on these planets, and yeah. Many Jesuits have planted this like protective mythology mm-hmm. to perpetuate their dominance in these places. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he fucking loves Jung, which is yes. a personal bugaboo of mine. But I want to hear you say bugaboo more often in this thing. <laughs> well, he found that he no longer could hate the Benny Jesuits or the Emperor or even the Harkonnens. They were all caught up in the need of their race to renew its scattered inheritance. You. Mm. Uh, but I think cross he... and mingle and infuse their bloodlines in a great new pooling of genes. And the race knew only one sure way for this. The ancient way. The tried and certain way that rolled over everything in its path. Jihad. And it's impossible to read that now without like contemporary context, but... Right, and so I think there's a lot going on. I think there's a lot going on there. I think there's a lot of problematicism there, but it's different than the one we give it now. I agree. Right, I think that um, he is in that context referring to humanity as a single race, and basically what he's trying to say is that the imperial system has stymied human-like progress and dynamicism, but that is, of course, through his weird Jungian lens, its own kind of problem, right? It's just not (laughs) the problem that we jump to now. Um, I also think that 
one of the fascinating things about this book is this book may have been like most westerners introduction to the word jihad i you've mm. read this up before and i'm more and more inclined to believe you well i don't know like i would really like to look into it right like what was the prevalence of that word in text before the release of dune but i think there's a decent chance that this was like a weird not his intent right but he sort of backdoored jihad as a bad word all right here's our task uh if this is a mid-book break we're almost halfway through the no we're not even halfway. no we're third third of the way right this is the third, we're entering the, the second second. of three books we gotta validate this i think this is our work as white people to be like uh like as white sorry i live in the city mm-hmm. um I'm assuming. So this is our work. Sick burn, Lily. I didn't need that. (laughs) (laughs) Is to figure out is that true, and I'm just going to task Alec because. All right. Um, I will see what I can find out. Yeah. Hang it. What? Wait. What? (laughs) No. No. See, how many flatter men they tend to do it? Yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. (laughs) Tell him not to do it. That's how. That's the exact limit of how smart I am. I can tell when you're pulling that bullshit. Uh, I have two other quotes here I want to bring up. You might want to cut them earlier, you know, because one of them's serious and one of them's not. Uh, So this one here is uh, talking about when Paul tells his mother that she's the Baron's daughter. We didn't talk about this. Um... And what he says is interesting choice of words. You're the Baron's own daughter, he said, and watched the way she pressed her hands to her mouth. The Baron sampled many pleasures in his youth and once permitted himself to be seduced. But it was for the genetic purposes of the Bene Gesserit, by one of you. The way he said you struck her like a slap. Um, That was kind of an interesting thing to say to your mom. Um... And then it goes on a little bit to talk about how um, when he's getting to basically talking about his his sister, um, it says the daughter the Bene Gesserit wanted. It wasn't to end the old atreides Harkonnen feud, but to fix some genetic factor in their lines. I thought that was the most enigmatic line in the whole section. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I figured we should probably address it at the very least in I actually think I'm going to go ahead and say that's an audience question because I don't know what the fuck that means. And if anyone who listens to this has a thought about it, I'd love to hear it and bring it up next week. Because to me, it reads as gobbledygook. Yeah, I I thought that maybe you would have some some light to shed on that. Do not. But again, I have a lot of where I run into the most criticisms of. Herbert is being like his thoughts on genetics are highly wingnutty and just really problematic and like further entrenched notions of race which is actually a social construct yeah no I'm with Alec on that her response is there's some eugenicsy stuff (laughs) she groped for an answer right like that was yeah um and that was when she says, great mother, he is the Kwisatz Haderach. Um, but I do also think that there is a lot of Bene Gesserit thinking 
that occurs off page to which we are never privileged. Right? And so I don't want to discount the possibility that here, at least, Herbert did have some plan that we never really got to, right? Well, like, there's something there's something here one page earlier. And perfection and you, and you know. Tell me what you think about this, because uh, in a moment he's going to reveal that they are both Harkonnens. Moments mm-hmm. earlier, um, she says there's a way to evade the Harkonnens, and he says the Harkonnens, he sneered, put those twisted humans out of your mind. Um, which I is think that's a- an intentional dig at her. I think that's Paul being a pre-bitch about being uh-huh. like, you're a Harkonnen. I'm a Harkonnen. Interesting. And he's already talking about how twisted he is, which brings me to him talking about how twisted he is that he should be with the guild, right? That he should That's be... That's an interesting oh, yeah. segment. He's like, oh, yeah, I could just get a job. <laughs> <laughs> I can just go go chill with the navigators because I'm like, I'm kind of be kind of like them, right? Like, Yeah, he's, yeah, he's, he's thinking, like, no, actually, I'm too cool for those guys. I think that's I'm 100% Herbert coming through, right? That's him being like, I could think so much deeper than those guys, but I'm not going to go do that. Right. Um, that was part of his terrible awareness. It didn't really fit his terrible purpose. Um, and then this is just a ridiculous thing that I read because I'm a child. Um, and it says here, um, <laughs> the, the veils had, keep in mind, it's him and his mother in a, in a tent. It says the veils had been ripped away to reveal naked time. <laughs> My favorite Star Trek episode. Do you remember, right, guys? <laughs> isn't, that the, isn't that Dana Carvey? It's Naked Time! Yes, it is Dana Carvey talking about a three-year-old. That's real funny. So, you know. But again, this is Frank. Just This is Frank writing characters deeper than he knows how to write, right? Yep. He is revealing the inner toddler in Paul who's just real excited about <laughs> Naked Time! <laughs> Uh, Who is it? I mean, or is he just a really inner toddler in us all? Yeah, that's fine. He manages to walk the line so well where you're like, is he? No, is uh, this brilliant or moronic? Of all the things Paul does, that is the one I'm least inclined to judge him for. I'm more of a no pants time person myself. Mm. Not a full on naked time person, but. Winnie the Pooh. (laughs) Winnie the Pooh in it. Fantastic. Well, I've got nothing else. So Okay, uh, I think that was good. I think we did a pretty thorough uh, dweebs-style demolition of everything Frank tried to accomplish in those two chapters. I like how you described it. We found the family atomics. Yeah. If you enjoyed this exploration of Naked Time, Winnie the Pooh styles, and the family atomics, join us sometime in the future for the next installment of Gom Jabber and the Moo Dweebs. With us, your resident dweebs. That's all I got. Thank you, Dr. Banana Brislin. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Reverend Mother Lily Banana Brislin. <laughs> Follow me at Dr. Reverend Mother Lillian Brislin Banana Brislin.com. <laughs> Lillian Brislin Banana Twitter Brislin. Twitter.tweet. <laughs> <laughs>